country blues are getting me down. Oh, escape those dreary 20th century blues. Oh, Welcome to the sixth episode in the series Talking Modernism, the podcast about the 1920s and 30s and how our grandparents and great-grandparents changed the world. I'm your host, Michael Hauptman. In this episode, I'll be discussing the districts of Tel Aviv known as the White City. If you listen to this series, I'm guessing you already know a bit about modernist architecture. But what you might not know is that the world's biggest collection of modernist architecture is to be found not in Germany, Britain or the US, but rather in 1930s Tel Aviv. The fascinating story of how a radical building style that started in Northern Europe took hold in a new city on the shores of the Mediterranean is not widely known, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity to share it with you now. To understand the White City, let's start by outlining the history of Tel Aviv. In the early 1900s, the port town of Jaffa, in what was then Ottoman Palestine, had a number of outlying settlements. In 1909, a few of these small settlements that were predominantly Jewish decided to incorporate and form a new town centred around the settlement of Ahilzat Bayit, meaning homestead, about six kilometres north of Jaffa. In 1912, it was renamed Tel Aviv, in Hebrew, the Hill of Spring, taking the name from a book called Alta Neuland, Old New Land, by Theodore Herzl, the man who was the driving force behind the idea of a Jewish homeland, and I'll talk more about him shortly. So why did the Jews want to move outside of Jaffa? Jaffa was crowded and dirty, an extremely ancient town that was mentioned by the Egyptians 3,800 years ago, and its limits were prescribed by ancient city walls. Theodore Herzl visited Jaffa in the late 1890s and hated its crowded squalor so much he spent much of his brief visit there trying to book a passage out. The population of Jaffa boomed after World War I, so many new settlements were established close by and not just by Jews. But there was an exodus of Jews from Jaffa to Tel Aviv due to rising tensions with the Arab especially after a week-long riot in 1921 that killed about 20 Jews and 20 Arabs. Why were there tensions between Arabs and Jews in Jaffa? The Arabs had no special love for the Jews, but a Jewish community had lived in Jaffa for literally centuries. Some of the tensions dated to Napoleon's conquest of Jaffa from the Ottomans back in 1799, whereupon the French army massacred the Muslim inhabitants of Jaffa before declaring the emancipation of the Jewish inhabitants. More recently, during World War I, the Turks had expelled all the Jews from Jaffa as they doubted their loyalty. Many of the Jews were originally from Russia, who the Turks were now at war with, and they were concerned about a fifth column. These tensions had been exacerbated by a significant increase in Jewish immigration after World War I, to what was by then known as British Mandate Palestine. There were a series of waves of Jewish immigration known as Aliyahs, 
which means a sense in Hebrew. If you know your biblical history, you will know that the Jewish nation was destroyed by the Romans with the destruction of the Second Temple in the year 70 AD. And after a subsequent revolt in 150 AD, the Jewish community in Palestine was killed, enslaved or dispersed. There did remain, though, down through the centuries, a small population of Jews in Palestine. By the mid-1800s, Palestine was part of the Ottoman Empire, with a population of about 600,000, of which 80% were Muslim, 10% Christian Arabs, and about 5 to 7%, about 36,000, Jewish. Then, in the late 1800s, the Jewish population in Palestine began to grow. Theodor Herzl, The Dreyfus Affair and the Rise of Zionism Rising anti-Semitism and expanding international communications then drove a wave of emigration of Jews from Eastern Europe. A small but significant portion of these went to Palestine. The first wave occurred in the late 1880s of about 30,000 mainly Russian Jews escaping the pogroms triggered by the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in 1881 and these pogroms featured in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. This first Aliyah, this wave of Jewish immigrants, were badly prepared and poorly funded, and most returned home after a few months. But it was the harbinger of the much bigger, better prepared Aliyahs that were to follow. The first Aliyah was sponsored by a number of small groups in the European Jewish community that were encouraging brave, pioneering and possibly foolhardy Jews to immigrate to Palestine to return to the land of the Old Testament. But this was a fringe view at the time. In the late 1800s, the focus of most European Jews was to assimilate into mainstream Christian society, to be French Jews or German Jews or Austro-Hungarian Jews. For most of their existence, Jews were not granted full citizenship in any country in Europe. Even enlightened England didn't grant full equality until 1858. But revolutionary France granted full citizenship to its Jews in 1791, and by the mid-1800s, most European nations, with the singular exception of Russia, had followed suit. The drive towards assimilation in Europe, though, was severely tested in 1894 with the Dreyfus Affair in France. A Jewish officer in the French army, Captain Alfred Dreyfus, was accused of spying for Germany. A large factor in his eventual conviction was the fact that he was Jewish, and in the eyes of many, this meant that his loyalties were suspect. Eventually, after trial and retrial that stretched on for 10 years, he was finally declared innocent in 1904, the long-drawn-out affair dividing and destabilising French society in the meantime. This highly publicised case of institutional anti-Semitism shocked Jews across Europe. It made them question if their efforts to assimilate would ever be totally successful and many wondered instead if they should establish themselves as a Jewish nation, a Jewish country, 
preferably in Palestine, and this movement was known as Zionism. Theodor Herzl, a passionate and dynamic young Jewish journalist who had covered the Dreyfus Affair, became the driving force behind the new Zionist movement, organising the first international conference in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. Politically a very savvy operator, he managed to put Zionism on the agenda of many governments and negotiated with the Ottoman government an agreement to allow limited Jewish immigration to Palestine. A new wave of aliyahs would commence, and unlike the first aliyah, the Jewish immigrants would be there to stay. The second aliyah started in 1904 and saw 35,000 primarily Russian Jews fleeing the continued pogroms there. The third aliyah between 1919 and 1923 saw a further 40,000 mainly Russian and Polish Jews fleeing the disruptions at the end of World War I. A fourth aliyah, between 1924 and 1928, 80,000 Jews, half from Poland, the rest from USSR, Romania and Lithuania, a combination of the fallout from the Russian Revolution and continued growing institutional anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe. What sort of people were these early immigrants? They came from rural, not city backgrounds. Their attitude and outlook was not that of the bourgeois mainstream. 160,000 Jews immigrated to Palestine between 1904 and 1929, which sounds like a lot until you realise that 1.5 million immigrated to the US in the same period. Zionism might have increased in popularity after the Dreyfus Affair, but it remained a movement of fringe zealots and enthusiasts. In 1914, the Zionist Association of Germany had only 10,000 members, a small fraction of the Jewish population there. If you were a normal sort of Jewish immigrant who wanted a normal bourgeois sort of life, you migrated to the United States. The early Jewish immigrants to Palestine were borderline revolutionaries, infused with a pioneering zeal. This was the generation who adopted and adapted Hebrew as the official language of their nation in waiting. In politics, they were strongly leftist and strongly socialist. This was the generation who founded the kibbutz movement, the trade union organisation Histodrut, plus they adopted equal rights for women. In their readiness to ignore convention and trial new ways, they shed many similarities with the modernist avant-garde. British Mandate Palestine and the Gettys Plan. This infusion of Jews to Palestine, 160,000 in 20 years, significantly altered the balance between the religious communities in Jaffa and fed the tensions that drove Jews from Jaffa to the fledgling city of Tel Aviv. And a major factor in the increase in Jewish immigration after World War I was the 1917 Balfour Declaration. In 1917, the British had issued the Balfour Declaration that supported the establishment of a national home for the Jews in Palestine, and this accelerated Zionist sentiment and aspirations. 
The motivation for the Balfour Declaration was partly British sympathy with Zionist aspirations and partly because they wanted to sow discord amongst the Jewish community in their wartime enemy, Turkey. The British, together with support of Commonwealth nations including Australia, conquered Palestine from the Turks in World War I. After the war, Palestine was one of a number of territories that British administered under a mandate from the League of Nations, and that's why it was called Mandate Palestine. In this case, the mandate was as a transition to establish a national home for the Jews. To quote, provide administrative advice and assistance until such time as they, the Jews, are able to stand alone. All this had been decided with the full and enthusiastic support of the Zionist movement, but with essentially no consultation with the Arabs, who were understandably suspicious of and hostile to these changes, even though their rights were apparently guaranteed under the Balfour Declaration and the subsequent mandate. The British ignored objections from organisations like the Palestinian Arab Congress, who rejected not only the Balfour Declaration, but the very formation of a Palestine separate from the rest of Syria. Trust was further strained in 1920 when the British authorities appointed Herbert Samuel, a Zionist Jew, as Palestine's inaugural High Commissioner. Now, the British attitudes towards the Jewish Yeshuv, as the Jewish community in Palestine was called, changed in the late 1930s when they tightened up on Jewish immigration in the face of rising Arab resistance, which eventually erupted into a full-scale revolt in 1936. But prior to this, they were keen supporters and facilitators of the growth of Tel Aviv and indeed the growth of the issue of in Palestine in general. In 1920, the population of Tel Aviv was only 2,084 and Jaffa was 48,000. By 1930, 10 years later, Tel Aviv had grown 20-fold to 42,000. So in the early years at least, the British administration were keen supporters and facilitators of Tel Aviv. Part of that support was the city plan developed in 1927 by the Scots Sir Patrick Geddes, a polymath and very prominent town planner. Geddes indeed was a pioneer of town planning and he developed many of its early terms and concepts. Geddes designed Tel Aviv as a garden city with an emphasis on suburbs and less emphasis on a commercial centre. Houses were grouped in a series of irregularly shaped blocks, grouped together more like cells in an organism rather than a square grid layout. Getty's original training was as a biologist, which might explain the organic inspiration. At the centre of each block, each blob, were common spaces, green common spaces, a park, schools, meeting centres and shops. He gave a lot of thought to green space in this new city on the, on the sand dunes, as well as the parks. There was green space between the buildings, trees on the shading the streets, Geddes even recommended the formation of a Tel Aviv Horticultural Society. Major roads were oriented north-south with east-west cost streets to capture sea breeze from the Mediterranean. Minor streets, Geddes called them homeways, penetrated into the blocks. 
The block layout with its network of pedestrian homeways encouraged heavy pedestrian use and lively street life. This is a foundation of Tel Aviv's character that persists today. Tel Aviv is one of those cities that never sleeps. But one key aspect of Getty's garden city plan was not realised. He imagined a city, or he designed a city, of freestanding single and semi-detached dwellings on 570 square metre blocks of land. Geddes really hated apartment blocks. He called them warehouse-type dwellings. But with the pressure of 20-fold growth in a single decade, apartment blocks were the predominant building in the white city. The architecture of Tel Aviv in those early years could best be described as oriental eclectic. It was based on the arts and crafts style architecture of the British Edwardian era, but incorporating Near Eastern influences such as ornamental and coloured facades, symmetrical divisions, domes, arches and hanging balconies. I've heard it described as an Englishman dressed for the local climate. Then began the biggest wave of emigration to date, the Fifth Aliyah. Between 1929 and 1939, more than 225,000 Jews emigrated to Palestine, including many Germans and Austrians fleeing the Nazis, and also Hungarians and other Central Europeans fleeing anti-Semitism in those countries. This new wave of immigrants was very different in character to the previous waves in that they were much more urban than rural and drawn more from the middle and professional classes. These were sophisticated urban bourgeoisie from Berlin, Vienna and Budapest, rather than starry-eyed Zionist fanatics from the little town of Anaktevka. Tel Aviv doubled in size in the 11 years between 1925 and 1936. All this building required money, partly funded by surely one of the bizarre incidents in history, the Haavara Agreement between Nazi Germany and the Jewish Anglo-Palestine Bank. The Haavara Agreement allowed the German Jewish immigrants to export a small portion of their savings in the form of a credit in German goods, typically building materials. These could be redeemed when the immigrant reached Palestine and the goods sold or used in building. The Nazis were keen on this, as widespread boycotts after they came to power restricting German exports. Plus, while the Germans were keen to get rid of the Jews, they wanted to keep their money. The Haavara Agreement was a stone that killed both these birds. And this meant that much of the White City was built with construction materials and fittings from Nazi Germany. Surely one of history's great ironies. One element still remained to create Tel Aviv's white city, functionalist style architecture. The birth and growth of functionalist architecture. The first quarter of the 20th century was a ferment of radical experiments in thinking, living and art, including architecture. One key strand of the architectural experimentation that led to the White City largely started in pre-World War I German and Austria. 
where avant-garde architects there sought a new style of architecture for the new 20th century. Wanting to break with the past, they tried to ignore all the rules and conventions that had defied Western architecture for the past 300-odd years. They created radical buildings like Steiner House built by Alfred Loss in Vienna in 1910. I've provided a link on the website. Plain rather than decorated, with new shapes and curves that overturned the notion of what a building should look like. In 1923, the very influential Bauhaus Design School, which was formed in the aftermath of World War I, held an exhibition promoting the ideas of Neuss Bauen, new building. Bauhaus was a design philosophy rather than architectural style. It was very leftist and socialist at its base, and it espoused a socially oriented functional language suitable for limited technology and local materials. A quote by one of its directors, Hannes Meyer, sums it up as architecture equals functions multiplied by economy. Indeed, this style of architecture was so focused on efficiently satisfying human housing needs that it is often called functionalism. Whilst it certainly had a role in promoting this new architecture, the Bauhaus House was perhaps more involved in industrial design rather than architecture. The more influential contribution to the functional style was made by the prolific Swiss architect and writer known as Le Cabousier. In 1923, Cabousier published a book that has been described as the most influential architecture text of the 20th century, Towards a New Architecture. In this book, Cabousier laid out a code of rational building functional uh, architecture around five points. First, the second story of the building should be lifted off the ground on thin columns, which he called pilotus. The interior of the building should be open plan, not necessarily square or rectangular rooms, and this could be achieved because the building would be supported uh, structurally by a structural frame rather than interior load-bearing walls. Similarly, the facade of the house should not be restricted by structural considerations as there wouldn't be any exterior load-bearing walls again. The frame would, the, uh, the structural frame would take the weight. And a related idea on his fourth point, the facade should have long horizontal bands of window cutting across the entire length of the building, lighting all rooms equally. And fifth and finally, the house should have a flat roof with a roof garden to allow the occupant space for sunbathing. Aesthetically, functional buildings emphasised human scale, honesty in materials, no veneers, and no decoration. They also adopted the golden section or golden ratio as the basis for the layout of the proportions of the facade. We humans find the proportion of the golden ratio pleasing, and I think this contributes to the enduring appeal of functionalist architecture. As well as being known as functionalist, the architecture of the Bauhaus and Le Corbusier is also known as the International Style, named for a 1932 exhibition in New York's Museum of Modern Art. The International Style persisted and evolved until at least the late 1960s, finding its apogee in the glass skyscrapers that filled post-war cities around the world.
But in the 1930s, the functionalist style wasn't hugely popular for housing, even in its countries of origin. A rather wonderful 1936 cartoon from Punch magazine has a smug avant-garde homeowner proudly showing off her new functionalist house to a horrified neighbour saying, Do tell me you loathe it. The style was too stark and out there for general tastes. It was only when the functionalist style was softened and melded with more mainstream decorative traditions in the form of Art Deco or Streamline Moderne that it achieved widespread appeal as a housing style. So why did the functionalist style find such fertile ground in 1930s Tel Aviv? With that question, let's leave our podcast for now. Join me next time when I'll conclude the discussion of Tel Aviv's White City and also discuss a very different strand of modernist architecture in 1930s Palestine, built by a pioneer of expressionist architecture, the brilliant but difficult Eric Mendelssohn. I look forward to speaking with you then. Thank you.